Welcome to Kimecast, where we break through and cut the BS in sports medicine, rehabilitation, and sports performance, and talk about how things really work. Welcome to Kimecast. I'm Tony Mickley here with my crew, Evan Hauger, Aaron Crouch, Russell Dunning. Today we're going to take on what does the shoulder actually do? Which is kind of an interesting topic, and we're going to dive into this uh, at some multiple levels. we got an interesting take on it. Um, and I, I, th- I think a critical one at that. So but before we get going here, Evan has some beverages to share. All right. So we are drinking. This is from Crooked Lane Brewery, which is in Auburn, California. So another local. semi, semi-local look. Um, this is called the No Hands West Coast IPA. Very little strong. No Can't no disagree hands. with the can design. It's got a nice color to it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Are those waves? Just come through. Yeah. No it's Hands. It's soothing. soothing. Is it a soothing beer? We're going to find out. Going on, yeah. kind of confused. Are you supposed to drink it without hands? Pop like, the top. So. Oh, could like you? A, These two are rowing a boat. I don't know what the value of that is, but they're using their hands. Actually, rowing a can. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put a picture <laughs> in, the, in the description yeah, here, so you guys can see what we're talking so about. Weird. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the shoulder. Yeah. Anyways. Back to the shoulder. So, what does the shoulder actually do? So, I think when we think about the shoulder, we we certainly see this a lot in training. We see it a lot in rehab, where we're doing certainly a variety of open chain exercises and you know you know the classics um, maybe the thrower's 10 or you're doing some job exercises or some extra rotation you know, things of that nature uh, which which all seems great and certainly has a lot of research around the effectiveness of that and we do use those on a regular basis in our process but i think it's really important to understand if we're going to train the shoulder and train an athlete to do something effective and it could be throwing a ball it could be lifting weights it could be wrestling it could be playing football a variety of sports. So, what does it actually what does it actually do, and, and how does it function is important. So, I think when we look at development and, and youth development, you can certainly see there's some early uh, interaction. Like if you look at a little baby, they're usually laying on their back and they're kind of playing with their arms, and they don't really know what their hands are, and they're kind of starting to maybe establish some reaching skills for for themselves. And really, there's some coordinations and fine motor skills happening there. But they really don't develop strength in their arm and control of their arm until they really turn over and they get into that, that oh shit moment of I'm on my stomach and I can't breathe and I got to push myself up to be able to see. And then they eventually get up into a crawl situation and they're on the move and then before you know it, you're chasing them around the house, which, which Aaron is almost. Almost there. He's almost. showing early signs of crawling, which I'm yeah. then... Early development. Early development. Well, with a new lead athlete like yourself, you wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less. He should have been running by now, two and a half months in. <laughs> should have been running. It's odd to see. So the, uh, the, we see this a lot with crawling is right in an area where they really develop strength and control of the shoulder girdle and of that of that structure. So, so let's talk about this. I think if you look at the research, it actually tells you what it is, and the research hasn't changed that much on this. But if you look at, for example, EMG activity of the shoulder, you see, uh, you know, of all the rotator cuff muscles, you see activity of all of them with almost all of the movements, which, which I think is the most important thing to take away. If you looked at just the results of the studies, you would see that the studies would say that, oh, when I did extra rotation, infraspinatus was the most prominent muscle to be used, or supraspinatus is the most prominent muscle to be used. If I do flexion, then supraspinatus is the most prominent muscle to be utilized. That's true, but doesn't don't let that take away from the fact that that MVC of that muscle was at 80 something percent, but all of the other muscles were at 60 plus percent as well. So to think of it in isolation, I think is a problem and we need to stop, we need to stop doing that is, is one thing for sure. 
Uh, number two, as you see, when the when the body goes into a closed chain position, so in a crawling phase where you put the weight bearing through the limb, then suddenly all of the MVCs in the research go to over a hundred percent. So now you've you've in, you've done more than what you can measure with a handheld dynamometer, and now you're seeing that the the forces are exceeding 115 percent with force. So clearly, the, the load with uh, closed chain exercise is far greater which is important because we all tolerate close exercise in a, in a healthy state. So we need to be able to train people to that level. So just having them do open chain stuff is clearly not enough, right? So those, those are some things to consider. If you look at the very basics of how this thing functions, uh, you've got this scapula sitting on a thoracic spine, okay? And then attached from the scapula, you've got this, the arm hanging off and you've got your rotator cuff essentially holding that together. So you got four muscles there holding this ball into the socket. And the thought process oftentimes is it's the rotator cuff's job to hold the ball in the socket, which is hundred percent we agree with. When you look at the, the scapula, you'll think, oh, the scapula is winging. The scapula is doing this. Something's wrong with the scapula. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe the scapula's job is to keep the ball in the socket. So if the humerus moves forward, the scapula might wing in an effort to keep the ball in the socket because maybe the cuff's not strong enough to sustain that, that hold. So now the scapula is having to move and we continuously blame the scapula for the problem and do more rhomboid work and do more lower trap work and do all of this garbage that somehow is associated with improved performance, which is yet to be seen in the world. So we need to look at what is the scapula really doing? It's a bone, it's a floating bone, mind you. Uh, it's, it's the only connection of the scapula and the entire upper to the body is by the clavicle and all the other soft tissues. So we have to consider this is a very dynamic system. This is not a, a structurally sound system by any means. So the general nature of this tissue is very, very mobile. The shoulder is the most mobile joint in the body. It is, it is tendency to be hypermobile. The rotator cuff's job is to reduce that mobility and hold, and hold it stable and really solidify that. And then the rest of the process is really about kinetic linking. Can we take that rotator cuff, hold the ball in the socket, stabilize it, and then use the prime movers and the other muscles around the structure to really generate force and, 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 and move the limb in some certain way to move an object, maybe to move a ball or to move, a, to move your body weight against the, against the ground and maybe a push-up position or something else, or maybe in a combat maneuver like wrestling or something where you're using it to engage an object. So some considerations there that this is much more than a, a thing where we just look at open chain function, but rather look at how well does the rotator cuff really stabilize that humerus inside the glenoid. And then when we talk about scapular control, let's be sensitive to what that really means. How well does the thoracic spine move below the scapula first and foremost? And secondly, secondarily, what's the kinetic chain look like of that supporting musculature around the scapula and, and the upper extremity? Yeah, a different perspective that gives you the very similar light is if you find a rotator cuff weakness with a simple manual muscle test and you do some traditional rotator cuff strengthening, which very much might be very prudent and do for a number of good reasons, you should ask yourself, why did that shit get weak to begin with? Mm -hmm. And if you're seeing this scapula that's a bit misplaced or some, some chronic posturing that's, that's less than ideal then the cuff is getting tired because it's trying to do something that's really feasibly not possible and it's cr chronically overworked. And then that gives you the weakness. And so then we see these issues. So it's not so much that, that uh, you know, an external rotation exercise is maybe a bad exercise, but there is more to the puzzle. Yeah. Kind of like peel back the onion a little bit more on that same topic is 
you need some level. I mean, that you learn it early on in school. It's like proximal stability, distal mobility. When you're talking about an open chain movement pattern, exercise, whatever it may be. And if to your point, if the rotator cuff is weak at baseline, why the hell is it weak at baseline? If it's pulling from a poor midline or if it's pulling from a poor anchor, then because the scapula is trying to figure out its way to get the ball in the socket to line up correctly, then you've got this unique relationship of the scap or the, the thoracic spine region that involves your spine, your rib cage, your scapula, and even the lower part of your cervical spine to uh, connect with the glenohumeral joint and all the structures that surround it. And so understanding that you have to solve some mobility issues at the thoracic spine to allow the shoulder blade to be in the most optimal position to then provide the anchor for a solid functioning rotator cuff to then hold the ball in the socket in place. And now they can start moving their arm appropriately with some efficiency and, and, and less strain to the delicate tissues. Totally. And I think I can highlight all of this a little bit with a story about myself. So I love uh, this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was, I was, I have a multiple time dislocator. I feel like I'm at an AA meeting here. I'm at a multiple time dislocator from multiple, uh, many, many different things. It happened three times. All three times it was essentially out for more than two hours sitting there waiting to get it back in. I had to be sedated one, one of the times. And one of this is, this is kind of gnarly. The, the first time this happened, I was playing rec basketball and I, I pin a shot on the play, block a shot, pin on the backboard. Somebody hits me from behind, shoulder comes out and it's just sitting here. And so I'm at school. They take me to the, like, the student wellness center. There's nobody there that's willing to touch me. And the, the person with like the morphine's not there either. So I'm sitting there for two hours, like worst pain in my life. Eventually, guys, two guys show up. You need another guy. Two guys show up, lay me down on an x-ray table. One guy yanks on my arm this way and the other guy puts a towel under my armpit and pops right back in. Instant relief. I'm like, cool. Problems are solved. <laughs> problems are solved. <laughs> Little did I know, I was, I, was in for a, I was in for a treat. So a couple more times down, this, uh, this it popped out a couple more times. I go in. I had one MRI after the first time. Total bank heart lesion, complete tear of the, the labrum there. Um, after the third time, like, okay, we got to do something about this. So we're going to do one more MRI. I go in and doing the MRI with contrast. The lady's pumping the contrast in. She's like, huh. I've never got this much contrast in anybody before. I'm like, <laughs> I knew enough. I was I was just getting into PT school. I was actually interning with you guys at the time at uh, at another at another clinic locally. And uh, the, when she says I've never got enough contrast in here, I knew that that meant that it was just leaking out the entire time, and I have a massive tear. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I get surgery, surgically repaired. They tighten the capsule, um, and and I go through like my own kind of self rehab process and. Um, it, you know, I, I got to a point where I was very strong in external rotation, prone Y, like I can do prone Y with, with, with the best of them. Or I could do all of these things that were in that, in that study that you're talking about. I had all of those components dialed, but I played baseball my whole life. I still couldn't throw a baseball without pain. I still couldn't put my arm overhead without pain. Um, so there, there was still like a, a major missing piece. And, and it wasn't until I kind of had a better understanding of how the body worked that I went and figured out, okay, my thoracic spine doesn't move well. Let's start there. And then this bigger component of this idea, you guys have kind of all alluded to this, but I, I, I just term it dynamic stability, the ability to control the ball in the socket or saturate the, the humeral head in the glenoid. And I, I was shit at that. I was terrible at it. And we, we do a lot of drills that I, that I think are, are somewhat not necessarily unique, maybe unique in the PT world that, and closed chain stuff is great, but uh, we can get more into this with, with some of the open chain things we do, like Turkish get-ups and arm bars and all that. But that journey of, of creating better dynamic stability was was phenomenal. I, I mean, I can't throw like I used to, but I, I'm able to throw pain-free, put large amounts of weight over my head and, and extremely functional. How far can you throw right now? 
Well, I, you were a liability on the softball field for a little bit. Sticking Evan at first base because he can't throw. So, so that, yeah, in PT school, that's true. Actually, yeah. I was. I couldn't throw. And then we snatched for a base. long time, and then opened up, and I throw like a hose from shortstop. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Frozen rope. Yeah. <laughs> Can we put some sound effects in there? Yeah. <laughs> Did that upgrade your salary to uh, on the on the soft on the softball field to go yeah. from first to short? No, I mean, from fourth to third in the landing lineup. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's important to you. So, yeah, no, so this is a this is a critical. So when we look at the, the function of this, and if you're doing with like a post-operative shoulder, of course you got to deal with the post-operative things and escort that uh, that tissue through the healing process over the first uh, probably month at least four weeks. But either, even then after that, and I would encourage you with all non-operative uh, shoulder conditions, really check the thoracic spine first. So it's really critical that we check this thoracic spine. And the simplest way to do that is we look at thoracic rotation. So we do this through our pull proof testing that we, we teach is to do a quadruped thoracic rotation test and see how much does it move. And if the thoracic spine is limited in rotation, it's probably limited in extension as well. Both those are going to affect the scapula quite a bit. We are not going to be able to get this so sacred scapular depression that we speak of. You know, I can't talk to a, a clinician or even a strength coach who doesn't talk about scapular depression. But I, I, at the same time in doing that, I don't really think they understand what they're saying. If the scapula is going to be depressed, it better you better have the thoracic spine out of the way so it can actually do the movement. Mm -hmm. right? And I think we miss that often. So let's make sure the thoracic spine moves well. If it does, my experience has been the scapula will do just fine and it will, it will, it will do its job well. So thoracic spine move well and then really stabilize that, that glenohumeral joint. So to do that stability part of the glenohumeral joint, it goes back to some things to really value. Obviously, you got to build some some foundational strength here. So we do a lot of holds in this in this scenario, and I I think this is an important foundationally to to develop. So we believe in A's, Y's, T's, W's, uh, but we really believe in holding them for periods of time. So body weight work, long holds, thirty to sixty seconds. Developing the endurance of these rotator cuff tissues to really, to really stabilize and lock it in is critical. Uh, I like using uh, some tubing drills as well. Same idea. Maybe that little bit that you start with tubing, you can add a little more speed of contraction so we can get a little more of a faster concentric, but then still hold the isometric position for a few seconds and then back out of it. And that'd be a similar thing, just going with basically A's, T's, and uh, extra rotation with that. We usually do an uppercut movement or a shoulder fly as well. So we do some varieties there that, that to really kind of develop rotator cuff control and a bit of endurance of the tissue. Once those things are mastered, then that's where we've really found the kettlebell to be a, a phenomenal tool to develop this uh, approximation and this co-contraction, this stability, and kind of once you have that endurance in place, adding the bell and then building endurance to this actual added load is, is phenomenal. So we use a variety of armbar tools as well as a variety of, of, the, of the get up. Uh, we think are both great tools to kind of develop, really develop the scapular control with the presence of, of rotator cuff activation. I think the belt does something really unique. It has this kind of two-faced demon to it. And, and I'm a big believer in, in suffering. You gotta, you gotta work. <laughs> you, so you gotta work. And, and that, that can mean one of two things with the bell. You can make it hard. What's nice about the bell is it sits below your wrist. When it sits below your wrist and you grip it tight, it kind of becomes one with your arm and you'll feel very stable with that load. So we get to load and, and put some pressure through the system. It is a pressure test to see, can you anchor down and own this weight? But then we go the opposite way. This is the yin and yang of it all. And I, I, the reason why I love it is now we go a lot lighter. We flip it 
and we what we call it a bottom up arm bar or a bottom up get up or a bottom up carry and, and it becomes this really difficult thing to stabilize and, and we use significantly less weight when you're doing a bottom up and then the goal is can you steady it so you can go from a motor control game to uh, you know with some inherent perturbation because it's hard to control that mass that that's elevated from your wrist by a few inches to to more uh, of a strength game so you got one tool that can really kind of split into two different worlds and I love using one for activation and another one for some good old-fashioned strength load on the body. I think you uniquely, or you, you alluded to something that I think people underappreciate with upper extremity development, and it's grip, grip development. So grip development, um, it is correlated to proximal stability, at least it's, it's activation. So it's kind of like a concept called irradiation is that if you can kind of engage the grip distally, you'll actually get more engagement proximally. And so with the kettlebell, there's the uniqueness about it laying on the back of the wrist is that it does require you to flex the wrist a little bit, use your, your flexors and, and everything else that's involved in uh, your grip to stimulate a little bit more control, a little bit more engagement of some of the things that surround your glenohumeral joint and your scapular region. Yeah, that distal to proximal thing, we think about in the lower extremity all the time, we, we had talked about this on a previous episode, foot, feet rooting into the ground, or this the same thing, that distal rooting, that rooting thing. I mean, this, this all goes together, that like scapular depression, tensioning everything. If you get that distal tension, you get the radiation that creates this rooting idea that lower extremity, upper extremity applies everywhere. In, bo in both with the arm bar and the getup, these are slow moves. You know, an arm yeah. bar for 30 seconds is 60 seconds. A getup done really slow takes 60 seconds. Yeah. Could go back to some good old fashioned I's, Y's, and T's. Hold it for a long yeah. period of time. This is stabilizing tissue. It's meant to do its job in a stamina fashion. Holding something overhead, same thing. Probably one of the most valuable things you could possibly do with someone with an upper extremity issue or at least rehabbing process is to get them to hold something fully overhead in a prolonged fashion. Like something that's going to give back to their life in an injury preventative way and also probably a quality of life way for recreation is to have them manage a certain level of load overhead. Like for any recreational athlete, or actually for any, any overhead athlete that I would work with, it's you need to be able to hold at least a third, maybe if you're elite, half your body weight and one hand overhead for at least 60 seconds. What does everybody complain, complain about when they come in? It's like, well, it pinches when I go like this. When I raise my arm, it pinches here. This is like the this is like that sign, the piece you're always going back to, you're always looking yeah. at. It's like your reevaluation, retesting all the time. Well, does it pinch overhead again? I mean, that, that that's the missing piece for them. And whether it's the old person picking up the grandkid or grabbing the cup out or the person throwing 90 miles an hour or or you know, snatching a barbell over their head, whatever it is, it probably does come back to that. Yeah. Agree. And then bring it back down that, you know, before you get excited to implement an overhead carry in, in your next treatment day, but like you have to establish that full range of motion. You have to establish that long duration hold with a very simple open chain exercise. And you start thinking about some of these closed chain options or these, some of these um, kettlebell oriented drills to build towards something like that. And then there is quite a magical result that you get once you go through that process correctly. Yeah. It's really important that we have this, this foundation where you have, you have these pro ISOs that we really like to use. We, then we use the tubing exercises, to develop more strength endurance, and then move into these arm bar categories as well as our, um, our Turkish get up stuff. And it might just be a partial get up. Maybe it's just a step one through three for the shoulder, you know, depending on the age of the person. But we're doing this with people that are 60 years old, people that are 20 years old, you know, people that are 15 years old. They do have to have an interest and a focus, I would say, on the get up or on some of these uh, kettlebell movements. They actually want to master the movement. Yeah. So be sensitive to that. But I, I think if you could establish that as a clinician working with your or a coach working with your client, that's valuable. 
once you once you establish those abilities to do the basics, arm bars, in the first few stages of the get up, then that really opens up the carry series. I think for people where it could you could do you know uh, um, either a suitcase carry or a farmer's carry if you want to do single or double arm. You do, of course, a racked carry or bottoms up rack carry is a phenomenal tool for for even. I mean, I've had a I've had a ninety year old do bottoms up rack carry. We did a double arm just to kind of give her some core control and get her posture up. But certainly, a, a single arm double, uh, bottoms up rack carry is a great option for. How, how heavy was that? Was that twenty four kilos? What was yeah, that? Twenty four, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I made her buy a fifteen pound kettlebell, and she hated me for it. But her kids loved me for it, and uh, and she used the damn thing. And she's uh, she's doing well. She's still independently living at like ninety six years old. So that's, that's that's the key there, you know. But the um, so so getting them to do the carry series is great. And then eventually, you know, we talked about some things here like snatch and some overhead things. And certainly, you want to go overhead carry. Then we want to go to an overhead press, always in a single arm fashion. And then uh, if snatching is appropriate, then it's certainly a conversation to be had. I think that if Evan concluded his story, he'd probably come back to the overhead carry, overhead press, and then eventually snatching, which led to that stability gain. That, yeah. But not until he earned all of those other levels in between. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to earn every level. And I, I think we're talking about some advanced stuff here. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know I don't know if this leads into our what the fuck segment. I don't know if this is what it is. But one, <laughs> one pet peeve of mine is jumping to some of these advanced exercises before somebody's ready. And I think it comes back to you got to really understand the anatomy here. So um, I've seen this in a couple of different ways with some of our younger clinicians and then also with the people that come in that maybe have failed other places is so again, understand the anatomy, right? We've got the labrum that is kind of deepens the socket or deepens the golf tee there that the ball's sitting on a little bit. And somebody had a, a posterior labral repair and six weeks out, they were jumping into closed chain activities, pushing on the ground. Now, again, I'm all for closed chain activity for radiation. It's a great drill. If they're strong enough, that's awesome. But we got to understand the anatomy. Like clearly six weeks out, they're not ready for this. And the anatomy of this is that that, that humeral head is now pushing back on the labrum on the backside of the shoulder. So all of these, 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 these advanced drills are great, but we've got to understand all the little pieces in the anatomy of this before we, you know, we, we jump into it. I think that's a huge mistake that, that a, a more green clinician can do is, yeah. is you use some, you learn some cute drills and you learn some fancy drills. And then you say to the average Joe, this is what I'm, I'm going to build you to. One, right. Whoa, calm down there. We might have some, some degeneration or some good old fashioned stiffness. That's probably not going to be easily corrected from, from a 40 year old desk job. So if we don't have a thoracic spine that can move 50 degrees, a lot of this is out of the water. And, and you might think like, well, 50 degrees of T-spine rotation, that's a lot. Yep, that's what's required. Don't don't go overhead dynamically if you yeah. don't have that. Yeah. And, and it's not one of those things like, well, we have 35 degrees, so that's kind of close. I'll still go overhead. That's when you invite the uh, the pinch. You, you're going to invite impingement syndromes and chronic pain when you have a T-spine that's not mobile, and, and then you're going to aggressively go overhead. And, and then, you know, that's what leads people. Well, if I can't go overhead, then I'm just going to – I'm going to do other things. I'm, I'm going to – yeah. I'm going to bench press. I'm going to push up. I'm going to go horizontal because I can't go overhead when, when in fact, they're just not really addressing the limiting factor. It's a great segue. I know. I, and I, I feel like we have to bring a little passion to this because it's, <laughs> it's really frustrating. So what the fuck are we doing <laughs> when it comes to the barbell bench press? Barbell bench press, can we agree, is a sport for powerlifting. <laughs> It is also really the only thing that maybe linemen would use if they're going to test at the NFL Combine. And those people also horizontally, forcefully press someone away from them. 
and lock them out, which in reality, maybe you should like, for, like train them when their elbows are locked out so they can hold them up, right? We're talking to an offensive lineman and grabbing people out to the side. Everyone else, just as Tony talked about in the very beginning of this podcast, they push their body away from the floor. Why is that more valuable than sitting on a bench, laying on a bench? Because now we're using your entire body and not just your chest. I know it looks good at the beach, but at the end of the day, if you want your shoulders to last until the end of time, maybe we should figure out other horizontal pushing activities for the gen pop. There's plenty of other options, right? Plenty of what other options. Like? What do we like? We got to give people other options. We can't just say don't. For what sure. do we like? Well, let me let me let me build a little more on the don't first, if you don't mind, and then we can go from there. I, you know, I think that there's a couple ways to look at this. I I got a good friend who was operated on by uh, the world famous uh, Dr. James Andrews, and after he woke up from his anesthesia and after he did a labor repair on him, he looked at him, he goes, "Stop bench pressing." hit him on the chest and walked out of the room. So, you know, if he's got some say in it, I think that's something to value. I think that also for uh, for us, we have to consider like, what is the purpose of, of of all of the bench work? And I think to build hypertrophy in the chest and hypertrophy in the body is great for football and sports where, where more muscle mass is absolutely critical. We have to consider the exchange, what's the risk reward? There's no functional sport that you can tell me at this point that I've seen that requires your bench press to be some some astronomical level it's you know push-ups are great but to bench press you know 300 pounds or 250 pounds or starting to push up those levels up higher and higher you know at the, well, what cost is that is really the question that we're trying to say right at the end of the day now we all agree that bench pressing body weight sounds sounds great sounds reasonable it's very good but at some point when you're pushing in the level you're actually going to increase your risk of of other anterior uh, arm issues you're going to see you're going to see certainly rotator cuff issues long term. You're going to see biceps, biceps issues in the short term. But we, we see it tremendously. So it's just something to consider, like, why are we really doing it? And it's a good question to always ask is, like, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? What's the, what's the purpose behind this? So what are alternate options to, to Evan's point? Um, obviously, obviously, the push-up stuff we love. Uh, we really look a lot at, like, to Aaron's point on, on stabilization with the arm and extension. If I'm a human and I'm going to generate force and I want to push something in front of me, it's not likely that I'm going to start with my arms bent and push it away. If I want to push like something heavy, like a, a sled, for example, or, you know, some weight or push a car, for example, I'm not going to start with my arms bent. The second my arms are bent, I've lost the battle. So my legs, my arms are going to be straight and my legs are going to do all the work because my brain knows that my chest and my anterior line is not that, that's just not strong. That's not where your body puts its force. So thinking about it mechanically, that, that starts to make some sense. Like, why are we training so much to be good at this thing that kinematically doesn't really add up? I, I think from a biomechanical standpoint, this is what I love appreciating is I think a lot of strong bench pressers are going to be passionate with this. And if, if you're listening to this or watching this and you're, you're a bench presser, I, I know you love it. You do love it. It's a simple lift. You learn it early. You got good at it. And you, you like it because it builds some mass. But I promise you, if you're a bench presser, your chest is stronger than your stomach. Yep. Now yeah, you're yeah. a lopsided mess. If you have more distal strength mm -hmm. than proximal strength, mm -hmm. you're a lopsided mess. It doesn't work. The body can't work yes. like that. And so that goes back to the plank. What's the limiting factor when people plank? It's usually their stomach. They can't hold it together. And if you were to load that plank, think of just you know stacking a lot of weight right on you. Not that I recommend that because that will cause a little potentially another different kind of injury. But if we really load that really heavy, 
you'll find that the middle of your midsection is a limiting factor. It's, it's not your chest. It's not the shoulder. This usually is actually quite strong if you're a good functional athlete, but it's, it's the midsection that's the issue. There's a little tirade. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. That's no, great. That's perfect. It's fantastic. Yeah. I right. think that there's, I mean, you've, to those points, you, you kind of have to figure out if other options include the rest of your body. That's how you're going to use yourself. You know, that's how you're going to conduct yourself in whatever sport or, or activity of daily living you're going to conduct. It's just use the rest of your body. Find that the rest of your power and your strength and your stamina comes from your legs and your trunk, and then your arms just finish the job. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think one challenge that we probably face always in the bench press conversation is like, what about the linemen, to your point, that is, you know, this pushing and blocking and they do have to do this often you know I, i'd argue that if you if you talk to a defensive lineman it's actually an interesting conversation when the when the offensive lineman's arm is bent the defensive lineman is already one right so once that arm goes from a locked position to a bent position they're swim maneuvering or they're they're breaking that arm through all day long and they're and they're past him because they know that he's not strong with his arm bent he's only strong with his arm straight so it's actually a strategy taught at high levels of football that, that prove the concept that we're much better off in, in an extended position using our body weight and, and leveraging ourselves as opposed to trying to generate force with a, with a bent arm. And then if we must build mass, like if somebody feels very strongly about, <laughs> about bench pressing, <laughs> yes. there's probably some other ways we could do it. Yeah. Maybe a dumbbell because we can get in a more neutral grip or the Swiss bars, those neutral grip bars, totally. we can end up in a position when we're For not. Sure. Do you manipulate the arm position yeah, exactly. of the we individual? Put them in a yeah. position that's just a little bit safer for the front yeah. side of the and, and get it strong enough where maybe it's one, one and a half time body weight. But you're right. These two, two and a half, three times body weight, well, that's just silly. It's a really kind of silly thing to see because, again, if someone's listening and, and they're saying, why not? I haven't heard a strong enough why not. It's because you're pinning your T-spine, your scap is in a protracted position, and you're using your shoulder in a really funky position. And it might be simple, low skill. That's not a good enough reason to, to do it. You know, if you do a push-up, you allow the scap to retract. If you, if you tie it in with other mobility drills or some arm bars, thoracic bridges, and get-ups, you're going to really work on that thoracic rotation. But the demon is when the people go and their main workout is bench day. That's the demon. It's not so much of adding a little bench here and there or some horizontal pressing. It's it's really uh, negating what the body's uh, supposed to be good at. But with, with our athletes, I think we can think of that a little bit as, as kind of the candy, right? Like they're gonna they want that. They they want to see that. They want to sure. feel the weight. They want to yeah. do that. That's part of like it's like the I don't know it's testosterone or whatever it is. But they get like they get pumped about it. They love it. Like the the baseball guys that we work with in in down in Sacramento are. They love bench day. Bench day is their favorite day. Now we hide it on a day where they're doing a heavy weighted reverse lunge. So that's the real key for the day, but they feel like it's bench day. So, you know, it's like the kind of candy in the, uh, now they're using a Swiss bar when they do that. It's highly, highly recommended. <laughs> they're, they're, and with the, with the younger, <laughs> and with the younger athletes, it's, it's forced with some of the, with some of the higher level guys that have benched their whole career. Like who am I to take that away from them? It's like Usain Bolt walks into your office and what am I going to change about his program? He's the fastest man in the world. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. I think that your point on the, the dumbbells is fantastic. It's usually the recommended way we go. Cause we're not saying don't ever bench. That's not, not to take away from this, but again, more than body weight or one and a half, two times body weights are double O concern. Um, but certainly body weight's fine. And ideally dumbbell is, is a huge one. And you can really be free with that as far as how far you progress. And then of course this, the Swiss bar, which is really a neutral grip. So instead of having your grip in a pronated position, your grip's kind of in a neutral position. That takes a tremendous amount of stress off the shoulder, allows your elbows to drop a bit, and you get uh, you get a lot of the same benefits you get otherwise. So, you know, we just, at the end of the day, it's just about asking why. You know, why are why do we do mm -hmm. what we do? 
and you know you just gotta have a justifiable reason for it so if you do and that's your sport then by all means rock and roll but you know risk reward be, re be ready to understand that there's certainly a a calculated risk of, of some long-term rotator cuff damage and and some issues that you'll probably face for that so mm -hmm. all right y'all well thank you guys for listening we'll catch you on the next episode this was Kimecast, and we are the Kime Human Performance Institute. Thank you very much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation with you. Please hop on our social media. It's at KimeHPI and engage with us there. If you'd like us to feature a topic or answer any questions live on the show, post your comments there. You can also check us out on our website at KimePerformance.com, and there you can see links to content that we've posted throughout our podcast for more information.